that was really helpful. Thank you, Josh. Um, let me pray uh, before we get to God's Word this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, those very biblical truths uh, that were just sung both congregationally and, uh, and by Josh there in the special. Uh, we thank you that you give us the grace that we need for every day, uh, for every situation, um, no matter what. Um, you are a good father and you're a powerful father and um, you guide and you direct and you uphold and uh, you are with us every step of the way. And we're, we're thankful for that. And uh, we need your, your help even now as we study your word. We need clarity. Um, we need uh, insight into uh, how this text works itself out in our lives. Give us wisdom, help us to grow in wisdom uh, as we study this passage and help us to see more clearly uh, who you are uh, and the power that is uh, available to us uh, through your word uh, and through your grace. Thank you for the opportunity this morning, and uh, thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I want you to think uh, this morning how different your morning would have been up until right now if you would have gotten up without electrical power. Hopefully that wasn't the situation for anyone this morning. It'd be very easy to think about that, but if you didn't have access to electricity this morning, how different would your morning have been? Um, I, most of us probably don't even think about it. It's just normal, it's what we do, but I do so many things every morning that require electricity in order to do them. Um, I take a warm shower, thankfully, because we have a hot water heater. Uh, I make coffee in my coffee maker every morning because it heats up the water and pours the water over those beautifully ground beans and draws out that life-giving caffeine and flavor, and it pours it into my cup, and I'm able to sit there and see the steam rise off of it and sip it and wake up in the mornings. Most mornings in my house, you will find me scrambling eggs for myself and for other members of my family. And I'm only able to do that because I put a pan on a stovetop and flip a switch and it turns red. <laughs> the burner does and it heats up the pan and I'm able to scramble eggs because no one wants to eat eggs raw. At least most people don't. The list goes on and on, right? I mean, there's so many things that we have access to and that we can do because we have electricity. Most of the time, we don't even think about it. We just assume it, and we go on with our lives. I think in a very similar way, we don't think about how necessary God's power is in our lives. We think of God's power as something big and something he does. He utilizes to create the world, and yet God's power, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is accessible to us and is being utilized, even as Josh just saying, in our lives every single day. The New Testament is quite clear if you even just search the word power throughout the New Testament that God's power sustains us in a whole host of ways throughout our lives. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, we'll go back to this text later this morning, but in Philippians 3.10, he said that one of his highest ambitions in life was to know the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. I mean, that was one of the things he was striving for and that he wanted more than anything was to know the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. 
And if you're a believer this morning, that very same power is accessible to you. And it's at work even in you every single day and in your life every single day. In all the circumstances that you encounter, it's at work to sanctify you and to keep you by his power every day. But I think we, we so often don't think about that. We don't, you know, it's like we don't, we don't think about plugging the toaster in and, and we don't think about God's power. And so we sort of lose confidence. Uh, it's like we get disconnected from the power and it's like we try to make toast without plugging the toaster in and we're like, this thing's not going very well because we forget what we have access to and the ability that God provides in our lives, in our spiritual lives. And so what do we need to do to access God's power. Well, it's not in some mystical way. It's not if you just, you know, sit there and meditate and, you know, empty your mind of, any, of everything and you'll suddenly have this divine access to power. That's not how it works. God's power is accessible to us and we recognize what he does in our lives every day and we're, we, we're built in confidence and we're edified by his power through the scriptures, through the Bible. And so failing to properly understand this book and failing to properly engage this book sort of disconnects us from God's power, his immeasurable power. And so this morning, I want to talk about that as we study this passage. Uh, Mark chapter 12, if you're not there, flip over there, Mark 12, verses 18 to 27. And as we get to this passage, uh, Mark 12, verses 18 to 27, Uh, you're going to see this is another one of those confrontations between Jesus and a different group of religious leaders, religious authorities. Uh, It's taking place in the temple. We've seen this last week. We're going to see this again next week. We're right in the thick of the Passion Week, and they keep sending these religious leaders to confront him. And that's where this story takes place, and we're going to learn a lot from this story hopefully this morning. But I want to summarize what we're going to see here uh, with one sentence um, and then we'll, we'll work it out with these two points below. But uh, here's kind of the lesson that I want to I show you and demonstrate from this text of Scripture, from this interaction between the, the religious leaders and Jesus to properly submit to God's authority, which that's really what we're talking about here. Jesus is putting on display his authority. That's been the whole theme of this section. He comes in, he does these actions, he proclaims that he's the authority, and the religious leaders are are fighting against that, and they're trying to deny that and expose that he's not really authoritative, he's not really who he says he is. And so we want to learn from this how to submit to his authority and what that looks like in our lives. So to properly submit to God's authority, we must know his power through the scriptures. It's a very simple statement, but I want to, I want to work this out um, through this passage this morning. And we're going to do that in two, two ways, kind of two points here this morning. We're going to see an unbiblical denial a denial of God's power demonstrated through Scripture. And then we're going to see an authoritative affirmation of God's power through Scripture. And Jesus is going to give us that second one there. And so you can see how the passage divides up. Uh, But let's start out by looking at this unbiblical denial. Look at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him. Okay, so now you've got a different group of religious leaders, okay? The Sadducees have come to him. They're going to engage him. And I I just mentioned this, but most of chapter 12, even into chapter 11, has been taken up with different confrontations between Jesus and different groups of people in the courtyard of the temple. 
And their, their goal is to try to prove that he is counterfeit. They want to expose him. Look back to chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. The disciples come again with Jesus to Jerusalem, and he, as he was walking in the temple, look at this, these groups. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? So you have a confrontation there between the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, a, a committee from the Sanhedrin, and then look down in chapter 12 and verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And so these kind of different sects within Judaism come to him, these different groups of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come to him to try to trap him to do the same thing that the other groups were doing. And now skip past our passage down to verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And so then another individual of a kind of a different group comes to Jesus, okay? And so here in our passage, we've got the Sadducees that are coming to him. And Mark tells us what we need to know about the Sadducees. This is the only time in the gospel that this group is mentioned, in the gospel of Mark, that this group is mentioned, the Sadducees. They're different from the Pharisees. Herodians, those other groups. But Mark tells us what we need to know. Look at verses 18 and the beginning of verse 19. And Sadducees came to him, and here's the kind of editorial comment, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, and then we'll stop there. There's kind of two pieces of information that you need to know about the Sadducees from this. The Sadducees deny the resurrection. They don't believe in a bodily resurrection. They think that death is all there is, and you're not raised to life after you die. You enter Sheol, and that is it, the grave or death. And then you can see there that they refer to Moses. They're talking about the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament. They believe very strongly in the books of Moses, and there's some indication that they think that only the books of Moses are Scripture. They deny that the rest of the Old Testament has the same authority as the five books of Moses, and so they base everything on those, on those five books there. And so they don't find the resurrection explicitly taught, according to them, in the first five books of the Old Testament, so they don't believe that there is a resurrection. And so they come to Jesus, and they have this sort of different doctrinal take on things than the Pharisees do, and they plan to expose Jesus and to trap him. Of course, they would probably have known that Jesus had spoken about the resurrection before. If you remember back in Mark 8 and 9, he'd been teaching his disciples and others that he was going to rise from the dead. There was a resurrection, so they would have known this perhaps. But either way, they know, they assume they're different from him on this, and so they're going to try to expose him. They want to show just how silly belief in the resurrection is. That's their goal. How can you really be a teacher of God if you believe this? And that's what they're going after here. And so they pose a question to him, and this is found in verses 19 all the way to verse 23. Let me read the whole section to you, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Teacher, verse 19, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So that's the, the principle there, and we'll, we'll talk about where that's from in a second. But verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. 
and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they arise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And so, you know, to us, this sounds culturally very bizarre. Um, Bethany and I were talking about this this morning. It's just a a different situation here, right, Uh, that we encounter. It sounds very different from our culture and how we work things out here. But this sort of arrangement is actually biblical. If you go back, and you don't have to turn there, but go back and read in Deuteronomy 25, this was a law that was taught by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. And if a man died and had no children, no heirs, to pass on his inheritance and his land within the promised land to, then this was a law that was given by God so that that man's inheritance would continue on and he wouldn't be blotted out from the nation of Israel. The, the, the reason for this law is based on the importance of the land promise that God gave to Israel and how every individual and family had an allotment of land within the nation of Israel. And so this was to be perpetuated, and so something like this allowed that to happen. Now, this is mentioned a couple times in the Old Testament where this actually worked itself out or was attempted to work itself out, and one of those is the book of Ruth. This is the law that is behind the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And so the question here that they ask is based on a a biblical law from Deuteronomy 25, and then they sort of take this law and they go to these extreme measures and create this kind of crazy scenario of a brother and a woman who marries this brother, and he has six other brothers, and they all die without having any children, and she dies finally, and they end up in the resurrection, and whose is she going to be? And so they're trying to show this really, the resurrection idea doesn't make any sense because this this can't possibly work itself out in the resurrection. Now, what's interesting is Mark has already told us in verse 18, look back there, they say there's no resurrection. And then you get to verse 23 and they say, in the resurrection, when they rise again. And so it's obvious they don't believe in the resurrection, but they're posing this question and it's obvious it's not genuine. It's dishonest. They're trying to do the same thing that the Pharisees and the Herodians were trying to do. They're trying to trap Jesus, trying to prove he's not authoritative. It's an unbiblical denial of the resurrection. And we'll talk about the implications of that for our lives here in a few minutes. But Jesus exposes this, as you would come to expect as you're reading through this. Jesus exposes this for the dishonesty that it is. And he flips it on its head and gives some positive instruction about the resurrection and about the Old Testament scriptures that I think is very powerful. And this brings us to our our second uh, point here to work out this statement. To properly submit to God's authority, we must know his power through the scriptures. So we've seen a denial of that power through the scriptures, and now we're going to see an affirmation of that. And Jesus does not mess around. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? (laughs) Very straightforward. And he tells them what is the exact nature of their problem? Where have they gotten it wrong? Look at the rest of verse 24. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Pretty in your face. The Sadducees, what's amazing, would have prided themselves on knowing the scriptures, right? I mean, these were guys who were 
religious and political authorities in the nation of Israel. They served on the Sanhedrin, no doubt. Some Sadducees at times were even the high priest in Israel. So these were guys who were significant biblical authorities in the nation of Israel, and they would have certainly claimed to know the power of God. And Jesus here tells them, you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. This is like saying that Wolfgang Puck knows nothing about cooking. These are some of the most complete experts on the scripture in the nation of Israel. And Jesus is hitting them where they're the strongest. And he's showing them that their strength, what they claim to have as a strength, is actually a weakness in their lives. And so he actually goes on to explain two ways in which they are wrong here and demonstrates that. Two ways in which they deny the scriptures and the power of God. The first one is in verse 25. He says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so the Sadducees are assuming that everything continues from this life into the next life, if the resurrection's true, they're saying, well, everything must continue on the same, and it must be the same setup. God wouldn't change anything. He couldn't change anything in the next life. And so Jesus says, actually, you don't even understand how this is going to work. You don't understand the power of God because things are going to be similar, but they're going to be significantly different. The resurrection doesn't work the way that you think it does. God has the power to change things. And Paul actually explains this in 1 Corinthians 15, kind of jumping in the middle of his argument here, but he says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So it is, is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's different. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And so Paul understands there's a difference between the two, and that's what Jesus explains to them here. But then he goes on to to make his more powerful point and more explicit point in verses 26 and 27. Look there. And as for the dead being raised, this whole idea of the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? No doubt they had read the book of Moses, probably had it memorized. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And this is the heart of this authoritative affirmation that Jesus gives here. So what he does is he takes them immediately to the Old Testament scriptures, and they claim to be experts in Moses and only believe in the books of Moses, and he takes them to the books of Moses to show them where they're wrong. And of course, he, you know, the, the Bible, the scrolls that they would have had didn't have chapter and verse numbers on them. And so he identifies to them the particular passage that he's talking about. It's the books of Moses in the passage about the burning bush. And so he wants to direct their attention there. And he mentions some words that are said by God. And they're actually said three times in this passage. 
I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so Jesus is arguing from this passage and from these words of God that the Sadducees are wrong. And he's arguing that Moses is teaching the resurrection here. Now, if you're like me, you're reading this and you're going, what is it about this text and these words that had Jesus say, this teaches the resurrection? Why was he so firm on this? Why did he go to this passage? Well, we do have chapter and verse numbers, so go to Exodus 3. Why don't you turn over there with me? I won't just say the passage about the burning bush and let you find it. I will tell you where it is, Exodus 3. Now, when you're reading your Bible and the New Testament refers to an Old Testament passage, you certainly want to focus on the words that the author quotes, whether it's Jesus or the apostles, but you want to understand the whole Old Testament passage that's happening. And so Jesus is referring to those words, but in the context of this entire Old Testament passage of the burning bush here. What is happening in Exodus chapter 3? And this would be helpful for us to understand. In Exodus chapter 3, God's covenant people, the nation of Israel, they are out of the promised land, aren't they? They're in Egypt, and they're enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt, and they're languishing there. And Moses has been identified at his birth as someone of significance, but he has fled out of Egypt, and he's living in Midian, and he's away from God's people. Look at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And so Moses is out here. He's living this life away from the people of Israel, away from Egypt in Midian. And as he's going along, he comes upon a burning bush, and God reveals himself to Moses out of that burning bush. Look at Verses 2 through 6, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then God says, This is why it's holy ground, because this is who I am. He's defining himself to Moses here. And he said, verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He's defining himself to Moses, and he does this two more times in this passage. They have this whole discussion, then you look down at verse 13. God wants him to go to Israel, speak on his behalf. Moses is a little timid, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So when God identifies himself three times in this passage, this way, he uses those three names, doesn't he? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does God tell Moses, this is who I am, I'm the God of these guys, and this is what you need to tell the elders of Israel, I'm the God of these three guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the book of Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham, and his covenant was, I will bless you, your descendants will be a special people to me, I will bless other nations through you, and I will give your descendants a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And really, the whole book of Genesis is built around these three guys, isn't it? From chapter 12 to chapter 50, the whole second portion of the book is built around Abraham receiving those promises, God continuing those promises through Isaac, and then Jacob ends the book. Even the story of Joseph is sort of a footnote, a long footnote, but it goes under the story of Jacob because the book goes back and ends with Jacob and what happens to him. And so this is the point of all of this background, and this is why Jesus quotes from this And these words in particular, God defines himself this way to Moses in Exodus 3 because he is a covenant-keeping, redeeming, life-giving God. That's who he is. That's who he was with the patriarchs, and he will continue to be that type of God for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and for all of their descendants. Now, Even the mention of Abraham here should have made the Sadducees think about what happened in the life of Abraham. God brought life to Sarah's dead womb, right? And Isaac was born. That's the type of God that he is, the God of Abraham. He brings life. Jacob thought his son Joseph was dead, and he lived for years with that belief and that expectation. But God sent Joseph as if he were dead into Egypt, and Joseph ended up bringing life to the entire nation of Israel and to Jacob through his death in Egypt. And that's how God orchestrated it, and that's how God saved his people. That's the type of God that he is. And Exodus chapter 3, this passage that Jesus quotes from here, This tells us this is the type of God who rescues his people. Even though they're enslaved in Egypt, he promises here to rescue his people. Even though they're essentially dead in Egypt, he will bring them out of Egypt and bring them in life to the promised land. That's the type of God that he is. He's the God of life who brings life out of death and saves and redeems his people. 
And so Jesus uses this example from the story of Moses in the burning bush, but really he's talking about the whole way that God is in the Old Testament, because this is how God defines himself here, and this is who he is consistently. And there's really no better example in the Old Testament than the exodus of God's power being put on display in bringing life out of death. And that's what happens in the Exodus. The people are brought out of slavery into life, into a relationship with God, and then they praise him for that in Exodus chapter 15. I won't read the whole text, but you should go and read it later on. Exodus 15, it's this beautiful song that is sung after they come out of Egypt, and it praises God for his power. So let me try to bring this together a little bit here. God did not make a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then continue to be faithful to his covenant to Isaac and Jacob after he made it with Abraham, only to cast them aside after they physically died. That covenant is not over with them. He's not forgotten them, but he still chooses to be identified with them hundreds of years, identified by them hundreds of years later, and by the covenant that he made with them because he's a covenant-keeping, redeeming, life-giving God. And so if you go back to Mark chapter 12, which is where I'll ask you to go now, Mark 12, Jesus is making the point here to the Sadducees that they don't know the power of God because they really don't know God through the Scriptures. They don't know who he is. They don't know the type of God that he is, and they're not appropriating and thinking through the work that he has done over the centuries with his people of Israel. They're denying the resurrection, and so they're denying the very character of God, and they're denying that he has the power to bring death out of life, and that he's the type of God who will do that over and has done that over and over again. He's the God who's faithful to his covenant, and those who physically die will rise from the dead because God is the God of life, who continues to be faithful to his covenant. And so really, the whole argument that Jesus makes here is not really based on the words, I am. Those words actually aren't even in the Greek text here. It's really based on the character of God. This is the God. This is the type of God who you don't know as the Sadducees. And when you deny the resurrection, you're denying his power and his character. And so let's think about this for ourselves here for a few minutes. Sometimes I think it's really easy to downplay the power of God in our own lives because we don't see God part waters and turn them back over Egyptian armies and destroy them, right? I mean, that's not something we witness in our daily lives. And so we just don't tend to think that God is powerful in those type of ways in our lives week in and week out. But part of submitting to the authority of Scripture and living with a biblical mindset and under biblical authority means understanding and living as if this same power is operative in our lives today. The God that we serve is the God of the living, and His resurrection power gives spiritual life to those who are dead. His power is what keeps us from falling away, from losing our faith, and his power is what will one day raise us bodily from the grave and raise us to eternal life with him. 
Look back at Mark 12, verse 24. Jesus tells the Sadducees, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. They don't know the Scriptures. They don't know the power of God. And what he's saying there is you have not experienced the life and the power that God gives through the Bible. So I think there's a warning for us here from the Sadducees in Mark 12. They denied the resurrection, and essentially they believed that this present life was all that was available to them. This was it. You see a lot of people living this way in our world today, don't you? This life is all I've got. This is it. There's nothing after this life. And we call that a secular way of living. And people will talk about the increasing secularization of our culture today. What do we mean by that when we say that word? To be secular means that you're living as if you can have significance and purpose without transcendence, without a future eternal life, without the divine, without God. To live a secular life means to live as if this life is all there is. This is all that matters. I find my highest ambitions, my highest passions, my highest goals in this material world and in this present life. So questions we want to ask ourselves. Am I living this week in such a way that I'm preparing for 10,000 years from now? Am I finding my significance in the momentary, in the material, or in the transcendent, in God? And the entire scope of the Bible, which is about God and his character, the entire scope of the Bible tells us that God has created us. This is reality. This is true, that he has created us, that he loves us, and that his power is operative in the world today. And the message of the gospel that Jesus brought and that he teaches here by teaching the resurrection is that there will come a day when every person will be raised, some to life and eternal life and some to eternal punishment. And that is true. And that is reality. And this life, this material world, the things here, although important, are not all there is. And you cannot live a secular life and you cannot live as if there is no resurrection and there's nothing else past this. And for those who do embrace God and Jesus Christ and his work and embrace it for eternal life and trust in him, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available for us right now to empower us and to give us strength and to give us hope. And we talked earlier about Philippians 3. Philippians 3.10, where Paul says that one of his highest ambitions is to know, to know the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It's the exact opposite of the Sadducees here. They didn't know the resurrection power of Christ because they didn't know the scriptures. And Paul says, I want to know that power. And when he says that, I want to know that. And when Jesus says here, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God, they're not just talking about an intellectual understanding of the mechanics of how this works. They're talking about experientially knowing that power. It's much more than just acknowledging in your mind that God parted the Red Sea and that he is powerful. It's beyond that. It means to know the resurrection power of God by experience. 
I like spicy food. Do you know that the spiciest pepper in the world is called the Carolina Reaper pepper? It's the hottest pepper in the world, and it has a Scoville heat unit rating of 2.2 million. It's over 200 times spicier than a jalapeno. Now, you all now know how hot a Carolina Reaper pepper is, but you don't really know, do you? It's a different knowledge when you pop that Carolina Reaper pepper in your mouth and you take a bite down, isn't it? That's the knowledge that Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3. And that's what the Sadducees didn't know here because they didn't know. They had not experienced the work of God through the scriptures. They didn't understand it rightly. They weren't appropriating it rightly. And so they didn't know the power of God. So how does Paul say that he grows in his experience of the power of God? Philippians 3. Let me just get the whole passage here. This is what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says here that to really know the power of God as operative, as working in my life, to know it experientially, I have to pursue the knowledge of Jesus Christ through the scriptures through a single-hearted passion and devotion to him. This has to become my aim because I know there is a future life and I know there's a future resurrection and I know that Jesus Christ is there and I will enter into eternal life in glory with him or I will enter into eternal judgment because I don't know him. And so Paul says, I want to know the power of the resurrection right now and I want to attain the resurrection from the dead in the future. And so what do I do? I make it my ambition. I drop everything else. And this is my passion and my desire. And there's one thing that I go after hard. It's the most important thing. And that is where the Sadducees failed. They denied the power of God by not knowing the scriptures. And they allowed secular ideas regarding the resurrection, to influence the way they thought and the way they lived. And that's what led them here to try to trick the Son of God with their questions about the resurrection. And all of that led to Jesus saying in verse 27, you are quite wrong. You don't know God. You think you do, but you don't know God because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God through the Scriptures. But on the flip side, these words of Jesus here, that you are quite wrong to the Sadducees, point us to the reality that the truth, that the resurrection power of God is available to us through his word, through knowing him experientially through his word, through applying his word to our lives and living as if the Bible is true, it's available to us. And so my encouragement to me and to you as well is let's make knowing that reality our passion 
and our goal this coming week. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the teaching of Jesus here, that we can know your power and your character through the scriptures. And I I pray for each one here that we would not just understand these things intellectually and be able to state them in a sentence. God is powerful because he parted the Red Sea and he raises people from the dead. But I pray that we would know these things experientially and that that experience would come as we immerse ourselves in your word and as we practice your word within this community, Woodhaven Bible Church, and in with, within this community, the Down River area, as we share Christ with others, that we would know the power that you enable us with every single day, resurrection power, by experience, and by the scriptures. I pray that you would work that out in us and that you would give us a Paul-like passion and desire to know that truly in our lives. Thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.